Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 10, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that he was the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaius, for he was lacking, or excuse me, what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Father, thank you for this wonderful book, the word of God, and even for this particular book in the Holy Spirit's library of 1 Corinthians. And that we could stand here this morning, finishing up this book, tying up the loose ends that remains that you spoke in the remainder of this letter. So we ask, Lord, that we would have an ear to hear and a heart to receive what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church assembled today through this particular portion of the word of God. May we not hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but we each want to experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to our hearts. Bless your word, Lord, we ask expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps you've heard the term before good people skills. Good people skills refer to the ability to be able to interact with others respectfully as well as to interact and relate to others properly. The purpose of good people skills is in order to be able to create good relationship experience with the people that we interact with. It minimizes conflict and it fosters a healthy social interaction with those who we spend time with. Well, look, since God created people and God understands best how people work, and since God is the author of human relationships and understands how relationships work best, there is no one better equipped to guide us in regards to how to deal with human relationships and to interact with people than God himself. God can give us the greatest people skills or interpersonal skills that we could ever possibly have. And those things come from the truth and the instruction of God's word. That's where we get the absolute best guidance how to do relationships the best way, to do them God's way. And God's word supplies much instruction about right attitudes and actions when we interact with people. And our passage in front of us this morning as we close out this letter supplies to us some good 
people skills, some more helpful guidance how to do relationships as Paul is kind of giving now his closing comments in this letter to the church of Corinth, which was a letter, as we've seen, that was quite corrective in nature. Uh, The church of Corinth had its fair share of challenges due to some of the error of letting worldly influences creep into the church and taking some of the patterns of the world and the way that the world system thought about things and their ideas and those things had not only infiltrated the church life, but it was now beginning to influence the church at Corinth. And this was part of the reason Paul had to answer a lot of questions and deal with some issues to help the church get back on track a little bit. And now Paul, as he closes the letter, again, under the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit, he gives to us here some helpful guidance. And particularly, as we can see from our reading, helpful guidance regarding how to interact with and how to properly relate to people in different situations and circumstances. Again, remember the background as we closed off last time. Paul had just told the church at Corinth that he intends to visit with them once again. Paul's in the area of Ephesus right now, and he has told the church, look, I do plan to come back. And he told them about his plans that he made to go and visit with them and spend time with them. But Paul said, look, it's probably going to be a little while from now until I can get there. He told them that he wasn't coming right away because right now he wanted to capitalize. Remember, he said at the end of our time last time, I want to capitalize on this great and effective door that the Lord has opened to me here to do ministry in Ephesus. And Paul wanted to make the most of the present opportunity. And that opportunity was proving very effective. So Paul said, look, I plan to come, but it's probably not going to be in the near future. Now, with Paul having just told them that, he now gives them some guidance regards to potentially some of his other ministry partners being able to visit them and maybe to arrive there to do some ministry in Corinth before he can be back with them. So if you look with me again in our text in verse 10, Paul begins by first saying, and if Timothy comes, that is if he can arrive before I do, if he comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So Paul here gives now some guidance in regards to how the church should relate to Timothy. Remember, Timothy was Paul's younger, we might call him understudy. Uh, or Paul's uh, apprentice, you might say, in the ministry. And Paul says, look, when he comes, I don't want you to intimidate him, and I don't want you to disrespect him. Timothy was Paul's protege. Paul had mentored him in the ministry. He had served by Paul alongside of him as a younger man, gleaning how to do the work of the Lord. Oftentimes we see he traveled with Paul, and he partnered and served with Paul. And even we begin to see in the scriptures that there were times where Paul would even then send Timothy as an extension of his own ministry if he couldn't physically get there. Again, being in a body, you're limited as a human being. And so even as Jesus at times would send out his disciples to go to areas and territories, because even Jesus, when he was on earth, was in one limited body of flesh. In the same way, Paul at times, if he couldn't get to a certain area, he would send Titus there. He would send Timothy there, knowing they had his heart, knowing they could carry on the work of the Lord with the same heart and mindset that he had towards ministry. And so at times, Timothy was sent out on Paul's behalf. And Paul thought very highly of Timothy 
as a servant of the Lord. In fact, he gives them great commendation. In the book of Philippians, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. And the thing that Paul identifies is not he's a fantastic preacher, not that he can really woo a crowd. Paul says, I have no one else like him who will genuinely care for your state. And that's what Paul loved about Timothy is that though he was a young man, that he had a heart as a shepherd, that he was a servant, that he actually genuinely cared about the Lord's people. And Paul says, look, I have no one else like him. So often Paul would send Timothy out and he says here to the church at Corinth, which is a, a, a difficult crowd, as we've seen some of the things that were going on there. He says, look, if young Timothy comes to you before I can make sure when he's there amongst the church, he says, verse 10, that he can be there among you. Look what he says in the text without fear, he says, for he does the work of the Lord. And then verse 11, he says, and I don't want anyone to despise him. The word despise literally means to uh, judge harshly as worthless or unnecessary to kind of almost disesteem something as unimportant. See, the Corinthian church, as we have clearly seen, had some members who unfortunately due to a little bit of a arrogant attitude and spiritual pride and in some ways self-seeking hearts, they were a bit prone to being at times unloving and a little bit harsh and critical in the way they treated people. Uh, and Paul says, look, when Timothy comes as a younger minister to teach the word of God there, to provide ministry among you, to offer some leadership and guidance to the church there, he says, when he comes, I don't want you to bully him. And I don't want you to disrespect him just because he's younger or he appears less experienced in the ministry than perhaps the apostle Paul who was their primary leader, who they were used to being led by and directed by, where all of a sudden, you know, people would kind of look at Timothy and they'd be like, who's this guy? I mean, who, what's he going to teach us? He doesn't have the experience that Paul does. Or, I mean, he's, we're not listening to him. And they would kind of almost have this standoffish attitude towards Timothy where they could somewhat be, you know, disrespectful and even perhaps a bit critical and unkind making his life difficult as a minister where then timothy paul's concern was might then shrink back in fear and he actually says intimidation be among you in fear where then timothy's not being faithful to fulfill his calling in ministry because he's kind of bullied and intimidated by the people in the congregation and the way they're treating him and paul gives a very strong reason why notice they should not mistreat timothy what was the primary reason Paul says that they should not mistreat him, bully him, or disrespect him? Well, look what he says right there in the text, verse 10. He says, for he does what? The work of the Lord, as I also do. In other words, Paul's saying, look, even if he is younger, even if he is less experienced, the guy's doing the work of the Lord. That's a worthwhile thing to be respected and appreciated. Paul's saying, even if he's less experienced or younger, at the end of the day, he says, he's bringing the word of God to you. He's doing the Lord's work. He's serving you in the spirit. And so therefore, Paul says, don't mistreat him and discourage him. In fact, he says, you should graciously support him and try and help encourage him. In verse 11, he says, don't despise him. In fact, send him on his journey in peace. That is, bless him that he may then come back to me for I am writing for him with or waiting for him with the brethren. Notice Paul here gives some really helpful counsel to us in regards to the caution of not mistreating those who serve the Lord and are willing to do the work of the Lord. 
whereby somehow we could actually be guilty of discouraging someone who's trying to do the work of the Lord. But instead, we should find ways to support such people and encourage them to keep at it. Because see, the bottom line is no matter who it is, whether it's a younger person in age or a less experienced person or just someone different, when someone is willing to sacrifice their life and to allow their life to be useful to God in some way and to serve people, we should appreciate that. And at the end of the day, if someone's teaching God's word or giving spiritual guidance or doing ministry, we don't want to rudely dismiss them and discourage them and cause them to want to give up being faithful to something which Paul said in chapter 15, that the work of the Lord is never in vain. That anything we do for the Lord's work, that that's never in vain, that God can still use it. We need to always remember the Holy Spirit can work through anyone, through anyone. You know, just last week, someone was trying to offer a word of encouragement after the Bible study. And they said, you know, when I when I closed my eyes, I actually felt like I heard. And they mentioned a, a name of one of the guys that's in the Calvary Chapel movement. That's a very prominent Bible teacher who's kind of among the who's who of the Calvary Chapel movement. I'm the who's he in the Calvary Chapel movement. And, and so they were trying to be encouraging. And they mentioned the name of a very prominent Calvary Chapel Bible teacher. And he said, man, when I close my eyes, it's almost like I heard him. And, and, and I said, well, you know, the wonderful thing is this. I said, same Holy Spirit, just a different donkey. You know, I mean, hopefully if it's the spirit of God working through any one of us, the Lord can work through our lives when we make ourselves available. And so we want to be careful that we don't become guilty as God's people failing to realize the Lord can empower and anoint and use anyone. And that should be something we want to encourage when someone's wanting to do the work of the Lord, whether it's the younger generation or someone who's willing to, to let themselves be useful. We don't want to shoot our own soldiers in the spiritual battle. Last I remember, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. So if we only have a few laborers and we always need more, why would we want to discourage those who are actually doing that work? So Paul says, be careful of that. He then goes on, verse 12, to give some counsel regarding Apollos. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, Paul says, he will come when he has a convenient Time. So Paul informs them here of his discussions as well as his heart towards Apollos being, remember, Paul said, unable to get to Corinth himself at this season to go and minister to them again. Apparently, he saw it valuable to strongly encourage Apollos, who had done ministry among the church before, to try and get there and to go and to teach the word of God to them and to minister to them. But for whatever reason, Paul alludes to here in verse 12, Apollos had decided it was not the present time for him to go to Corinth as well. Even as Paul didn't feel it was the right season, Apollos, he says here, was unwilling to come at that time. But Paul says he's, he does plan to come eventually. He says he just deems right now it's not the right time. He's not willing to come now, but he will come when it's a convenient time. Now, I want you to take notice here. Paul respected Apollos' personal decision on this matter and he's just passing on awareness to the congregation of what transpired in his communication between him and Apollos. And when you look at what Paul's saying here, I strongly urged him to come, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time, but yet he will come when there's a convenient time. 
we see here that Paul respected each believer should be given the liberty to make their own decisions to hear from the Lord. And that every one of the Lord's people, if they genuinely know Jesus and the spirit of truth is in their life like he is in every other person's life, should be able to have the freedom to make their own decisions as they hear from the Lord for their life journey and what God is directing for them in their life. We notice that Paul, as a minister, did not dominate or control people. He wanted nothing to do with that. Paul did not have authority to rule over people's lives, to control them. Paul gave apparently, as you can see in his words here, verse 12, he gave very strong and honest counsel to people. Paul says, I urged him to come to you. The idea is he strongly counseled him. Paul gave strong counsel. He gave honest counsel, but then he left people to decide on their own because they ultimately needed to be accountable to the Lord Paul wrote to the Romans, to his own master, one stands and falls. And Paul knew this was important. They need to learn how to hear God's voice personally. And Paul does not try and strong arm Apollos here. Apollos said, I don't think I should go now. And Paul says, okay, that's his decision. Paul doesn't strong. Apollos, you better go. He doesn't do that. Paul says that was his decision. I strongly urged him what to do. I thought that's what would be good. In my mind, I thought it would be best. But for whatever reasons Apollo had, and again, that's between him and the Lord, he wasn't willing. He decided now is not the right time, and Paul honored that decision. And listen, that means Paul trusted the Lord to guide people. He actually trusted that the Lord can guide other people, that he doesn't always have to guide people, that the Lord himself is able to guide people. And he allowed people to learn how to be directed by the Lord and make their own decisions. Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians to the people of God, he says, look, we don't have dominion over your faith. We're just helpers in your spiritual life, Paul says. And look, this is very important, a great example for us regarding our interactions with other people relationally in two ways. First of all, there may be times in your life where you give to someone in good intention, very strong, honest counsel to do something that you think is good or do something that you think perhaps would be the best thing to do. Uh, Maybe it's as a leader and you give, hey, I really think this is what you should do. Or maybe it's just, you know, you're, you're someone of influence. Maybe you're mentoring someone or someone looks up to you, or maybe it's a conversation, even just a fellow believer, and, and you give them strong counsel what you think they should do in a given situation. It's so important to recognize if someone yet is then unwilling or not comfortable or determine it's not the right time. And let me just put the disclaimer here. I'm not talking about obeying the word of God. That's that's, that's a whole other issue here. I'm not saying we should tell someone what the word of God says in regards to sin. And they say, I'm going to do that when it's convenient. I'll repent when it's convenient. That's not what he's talking about here. He's just talking about giving a, a encouragement regarding a life decision or a step or why don't you do this or why don't you do that. That's what Paul's referring to here. And there may be times where we share something with people, but we have to realize we should never try and pressure people to do something. We should never be trying to strong arm someone and certainly never trying to control people, but giving people the freedom to do what the Lord is directing them to do and trusting that God can guide people. And let me make another disclaimer. That doesn't apply if you're a parent with your children. Go clean up your room. I am quite unwilling to do that right now. Maybe when there's a convenient time. No, 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 that's a whole other thing. 
when they're under our authority still. But when they begin to come of age, that's a whole other thing. They need to learn how to hear from the Lord themselves. We shouldn't be trying to control and manipulate them anymore. Or when we're talking to other Christians or giving counsel or guidance, we want to be careful. We don't want to play the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. That is not our prerogative. And certainly we are not Jesus in someone else's life, so we definitely shouldn't be trying to rule someone or to control them. That's not a healthy thing. Paul gave freedom to Apollos, and this was great wisdom. And let me say on the other side of that, that also means this. When someone is trying to guide us, and we're in the Apollos seat, and someone is strongly urging us to do something, and maybe it's somebody we greatly respect even, and they're strongly urging that we should do something that they think is best in regards to a circumstance, remember this biblical pattern. If you genuinely sense from the Spirit of God that maybe that's not something you're supposed to do or just something you're not supposed to do at this time, you need to learn how to listen to the Lord and to stand on that. You may ruffle some human feathers in a relationship, but the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. It's better to trust the Lord. That's what's safe. And you do what the Lord is leading you to do and learn how to hear from God for your own decisions. Paul, as he comes to verse 13 now, begins to give some counsel to them in a stronger way. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Again, he's giving here, notice some quick exhortations to this church who had gotten a little bit off track as we've seen in our study through it together in some different areas because they had been influenced by philosophical ideas of the Greek pagan culture around them, and they had some immorality issues. They had a number of different things. People were questioning sound doctrine of authentic Christianity like the resurrection. And and so Paul here gives some exhortations to them in verse 13. The first thing he says to them simply is the word watch. And that word watch could be translated stay awake, remain aware, be alert. That's what he's saying. It's a call to be on guard against dangers that threaten one's spiritual lives. And the language that Paul's using there, it's in a military tone, kind of like a lieutenant giving orders to the troops. And this is kind of the tone that Paul's taking here. He's saying, look, the spiritual life is a battleground, and there are always things that are going to threaten to attack our spiritual health and welfare. So we have to be alert. And there are always different forces that are trying to attack the people of God. For example, the enemy of our own soul, the devil, right? Paul, right, or Peter, excuse me, writing in 1 Peter 5 says these things, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. So as a believer, we need to know As a child of God and as a church collectively, we have a spiritual enemy who brings spiritual attack and warfare against the people of God. And we have to watch. We have to be alert and stay awake regarding the spiritual attacks of the devil. There's also, of course, the ungodly world system that's just pressuring us to accept unbiblical ideas and to embrace unhealthy agendas that the world wants to push or promote but that are not good or healthy or godly or moral. And so we need to stay on guard that we don't embrace ungodly views on matters or start accepting distorted standards of morality because they're greatly promoted in the world, but yet they're completely inconsistent with what is righteous or good or moral. We have to watch and stay on guard against those things. Then, of course, thirdly, there's our own sinful flesh. 
And we have to watch because we are constantly being tempted to satisfy our own sinful desires. That's why Jesus said, look, your spirit's willing. Remember, he said, but the flesh is weak. And then he said this, watch and pray. Watch and pray, lest you enter temptation. In other words, he says, stay alert to your own sinful capacity and remain prayerful because he says there is always the opportunity to enter into temptation to indulge your flesh. So as believers individually in the church family, Paul says you can't fall asleep. Stay on watch. And then he also says, verse 13, and remain steadfast or stand fast, he says, in the faith. The idea there is hold your ground on the truths of biblical Christianity. That is the faith. He's not talking about having faith to believe something. He's talking about the authentic Christian faith. Jude says that once for all, the faith, the genuine, authentic Christian faith has been handed over to us as the church. And every generation of the church must do its part to preserve genuine biblical Christianity because there are always winds of crazy doctrines going to blow against the church and this is going to come and contradict scripture and these new ideas and that's this and this is woke or whatever that's supposed to mean and, and so every every generation of the church has to understand look we know what authentic biblical christianity is sound doctrines that are immutable and unchangeable and we have to stand fast that we're not uprooted and commit to preserve the faith courageously that's been handed to us to preserve it and to pass it on to each next generation of the church. Paul then says thirdly in verse 13 as well, he tells them to then be brave. And the terms here is actually very interesting, be brave. In the original language, it could be translated literally behave like a man. In other words, what Paul is saying there, you could fairly say, is Paul's kind of saying to them in a charge, look, man up. Paul is speaking to the believers in this church, and for those who needed to hear it, he's kind of saying, look, stop acting like an immature child. It is time to grow up spiritually, man up. It is time to stop playing games as a Christian. He's saying, look, it's time to get your act together as a Christian. You're not a child anymore. Grow up, man up, be brave, be someone who lives in an adult-like manner. It's a strong challenge to not be a spiritual coward, to be negligent and irresponsible or lazy. And look, if we're very candid, we all know that under pressure, that's what cowards do. Cowards run under pressure. They don't remain responsible under pressure. Cowards don't follow through under pressure. Cowards run under pressure. They abandon responsibility and they don't do the right thing. And Paul exhorts these believers to exercise courage and to be brave, to man up spiritually. And he says, look, this is important. Some needed to hear that. Don't be intimidated so easily. He says, you be brave. Speak up for what's right. Speak up against what's wrong. You be a brave and a strong follower in the Lord's army. You know, perhaps that's a word from the Lord for some today to inspire us in the midst of our battles in the midst of maybe even your own personal battles with your own humanity. Maybe the Lord's saying, look, it's time to grow up as a Christian. Time to man up now. Come on. And, and we need to embrace that charge and continue to mature as the Lord calls us to. And Paul says, verse 13 as well there. And finally, he says, be strong. The idea is don't be weak. Don't be soft spiritually. 
have a backbone spiritually, Paul's saying. That's important from time to time. When it's hard or you're weary or whatever, that by the grace of God, sometimes we have to be strong spiritually. We can't allow ourselves to be weak and to cave in under pressure. We got to press onward. And there are going to be times, right? We all know. Is it not true that from time to time in our Christian life, as we journey through the seasons and the years, there are times when it's harder than other times. You go through a tragedy or a hardship or a trial, or you're just in a season where it's really difficult circumstantially. And, and in those seasons, it's a little harder to keep walking with the Lord. It's a little bit more difficult maybe to be faithful in some ways. But when we feel weary and we're under the load of something and such times, the Bible says you got to be strong, be strong. You be brave, you be strong. It reminds me of what Paul said, remember, to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He told him, be strong and courageous. Multiple times. Joshua, you be strong, you be courageous, he said. The Lord is with you. Don't be discouraged. You keep being strong. The Lord is still with you. And you keep carrying on and be strong. You know, sometimes even just the spiritual opposition of the enemy can be very strong. And that's why Ephesians 6, on top of telling us to put on the armor of God, it tells us to be strengthened in the power that the Lord supplies. Again, it's the Lord's strength that gives us the ability to do those very things. Paul, notice here in verse 14 then, balancing these things out, Christian life is not all about being tough like a soldier in combat because look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, yeah, I want you to be tough like a soldier, but then he says, but let all that you do be done with love. Paul says, yeah, be like a tough soldier in combat, but he says, you also should have a tender care about people in the midst of that. Don't just be Mr. Tough Guy and you're tough and you're strong and you're brave and you're going to bulldoze it. He says, no, love people. Whatever you do, even when you're being brave and being strong, God's love needs to be the underlying motivation to why we do what we do, that we should be displaying Jesus' love in the way that we go about everything. Isn't this what Paul spent the whole 13th chapter about, remember? Paul said, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love in my heart, or I don't speak in a loving manner in the way that I do communicate, then he says, I'm just going to annoy people. I'm just going to shut people down and it's going to be worthless. He says, I can give my body to be burned. I can give great sacrifice. In other words, we can do all these right things, Paul says, but if we don't do it the right way, and what's the right way? Love. That we're motivated by love, that the basis of our heart is love, and that it's done in a loving manner, it ends up being worthless. Look, again, Paul's reminding us it's not just doing the right things, yet in unloving and unkind ways. And if we could all be very honest, there are times where we've done the right thing, but we honestly weren't very caring in the way we went about it. We just did the right thing. I did the right thing. Get out of my way. I'm trying to do the right thing here. I'm going to tell you the right thing. That's wrong stuff you're promoting. But if there's no love in it, Paul says, that's going to really defeat the purpose. He says, whatever we do, we want to make sure it is characterized by love, right? Because Jesus was the epitome of love. Jesus was brave. Jesus was strong. But yet Jesus was the most loving man that ever walked the face of the earth. Little children felt comfortable around Jesus. You know, I love the statement they said of Abraham Lincoln greatly defining who he was as a man. They said that he was like a man of velvet steel. I like that. Velvet steel. The idea is he, he, he knew how to be firm. And he was a strong man, but yet at the same time, there was a tenderness, there was a genuine compassion and care for people. 
and there was love that characterized why he did what he did. And look, let's just remember when the Bible tells us to let all that we do be done with love, and that's a great Bible verse to memorize and try and live out each and every day and every week of our lives. Lord, whatever I'm doing, help me to do it but love. But always remember this, love's not just sentimental emotion. Don't, don't confuse that love is always just Hallmark cards and sentimental feelings. And love looks like Jesus serving and sacrificing himself on the cross for the benefit of other people. That's the epitome, really, of what love is. And so we want that heart of love to be driving all that we do. Paul then says, verse 15, And I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that he was the first fruits of Achaia. That's where the church of Corinth was, in the region of Achaia. And that they, that is his family, his household, they've devoted themselves to the ministry of, of the saints. So Paul says, see that you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Paul refers in verse 15 to this family, identifying them, notice, as the first fruits of the ministry there in Achaia. What Paul's referring to there, the first fruits is always the beginning of a fuller harvest to come. What Paul's describing there is how this family was one of the first families that was converted to follow Jesus Christ when he planted the church in Corinth. And Paul references this reality of them, how when he planted the church there, they were some of the first fruits of those who started following Christ. And notice this family's commitment to Christ, it translated into something. Do you see that? Look at our text there, verse 15. He says, they're the first fruits of Achaia and that now they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Their salvation translated into service. It translated into serving the Lord and serving his people and you know being saved by the Lord should always result in looking for ways to gratefully serve our Lord. That, that should be the outflow of knowing Jesus. Again, we're not saved by works, but the Bible says we're saved for good works. And out of gratefulness of Jesus saving us, it should make us want to serve others around us. And this family was serving Jesus. And I love how it describes here in verse 15 as well. Notice the whole household of this man were serving the Lord apparently as a family unit. You see what he says there in verse 15? He says, the household of Stephanus that they, not just Stephanus. Well, dad's serving the Lord, mom's serving the Lord. He says the whole household that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I love this. They're serving the Lord as a family unit. And let me just say as a word of encouragement, there's something very wonderful and healthy when families serve the Lord together as a household. It's something very unifying in a marriage relationship when a husband and a wife together both engage and get involved serving the Lord. There's something very healthy that gives good perspective to our children in our household when we teach them that we are serving the Lord together as a family. It does wonders for their perspective. And notice they were dedicated in serving the Lord and his purposes because verse 15 says they devoted themselves, strong word, devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. The old King James actually translates that verse this way. They were addicted to the ministry of the saints. I like that. They were addicted. What a great addiction, man. People are addicted to all kinds of stuff. 
whether it's unhealthy, horrible things and substance abuse or addicted to exercise or addicted to this or addicted to their career, addicted to all these self-serving things. Paul says that family, they were addicted to serving people. They were addicted to the ministry of the saints. How wonderful. And that term ministry is that Greek word where we get our English idea deacon. It's that same term that's translated to wait on tables, to be a table waiter. So he's just talking about practical service, right? If you go out to lunch today after church, you hope you get a good table waiter, someone who's attentive, they're serving you, they're paying attention to your needs, and they're, they're bringing things over to you to make your experience good. That's the idea here of ministry. It's not standing in a pulpit, teaching a sermon, teaching a Bible study. It, it's the word that's used to describe practical duties of servanthood, doing things to bless others, which shows me that this family of Stephanus that was addicted and devoted to doing ministry, they weren't just people who served at times when they were on the schedule for it. They were the kind of a family that were servants in heart. And I'll tell you something, folks. It's not just about serving. It's about being a servant. Jesus was the greatest servant of all, and biblically, the Bible says Christ lives in me and lives in you. That is, the spirit of Jesus lives in us. And so he's trying to make us like himself. So guess what's one of the things he's trying to make us be? Servants. Servants. Those who are willing to serve. And how wonderful when people don't just serve when they're needed or they don't just serve on the schedule, but they're actually servant-hearted in spirit and nature. And I'll tell you, when someone is like this, and they have that kind of a servant attitude, true servants at heart, they don't need to be asked to do things. They just see things. My associate pastor, when I was serving back at Calvary Chapel of York, had that spirit. I barely ever, ever had to tell him to do anything. He just saw stuff and did it. He knew it was necessary. He had a true understanding of what servanthood was. And the idea is you don't have to be told what to do, asked what to do. Servants look for things to do. They see things that need to be addressed. They're cognizant. They're aware. It's like Jesus in John 13. Nobody said, hey, somebody should wash our feet. In fact, all those who weren't servants that wanted to be great were saying, where's the person that's supposed to wash our feet? And then all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And he just says, there's something that needs to be done. Nobody else wants to do it. I'll take care of the need. And he just starts in a servant-hearted attitude, addressing the needs. That's what true servanthood is like. May the Lord help us all to be less self-serving and to have the spirit of servanthood of Christ, the spirit of ministry like this family did. Very beautiful, just looking for things to do, seeing ways to help. That's what a true servant at heart does. Paul says, verse 16, that you should submit to such. The idea is honor such people like this family and those who work and labor. Again, we do ourselves great benefit when we submit ourselves to the ministry of the spirit that's happening through the Lord's servants. That's how we are enhanced in our spiritual life. Paul says, embrace and, and submit yourself to the ministry of these kind of people. Verse 17, he says, and I'm also glad about the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus for what was lacking on your part. He says, they supplied, verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, he says, acknowledge such Men. So notice, Paul was grateful for these three men, he mentions in verse 17 here, who were from the church at Corinth, and they seemed to be the ones who actually carried the correspondence of letters 
to and from Paul that the church had first written to him, and then he then writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, back to them. And they seem to be the three faithful Christians kind of behind the scenes, doing the ministry work, taking that long journey. Again, they weren't on a train. They weren't on a plane. They were on foot, traveling through rough terrain. And I'll tell you, aren't you glad for three faithful servants who do behind-the-scenes work because of the fact of what they did faithfully that barely no one else saw, Paul acknowledges them, you have a letter of the Scripture this morning because they carried 1 Corinthians back to the church. And they faithfully discharged their duties. Again, they weren't on a stage. They weren't getting recognized. But I tell you, it's often been said before that the Lord's ministry is a lot like an iceberg. Right With an iceberg, you only see a little bit of the tip, a small portion of the actual iceberg sticks above the surface. The majority of that massive iceberg is all under the water and it's unseen. And the Lord's works a lot like that. You know, there are a few things that are evident. You see myself or the worship team members, and, and they're, they're kind of you know, the ones that are obvious. You see it. But I'll tell you this, there's a whole lot of the work of the Lord in ministry that goes on under the surface and behind the scenes that nobody ever gets noticed for. That's true ministry. That's true work of the Lord here. And these men faithfully carried this letter back and forth, and Paul commends them and acknowledges them. He says in verse 17, for what was lacking on your part, what you couldn't do, they supplied. So he commends them for seeing what was lacking and doing something to supply what they saw was lacking. I look at that and I think, man, what a wonderful commendation. What a great thing to be someone who sees what's needed and tries to do something about it. To be someone who sees what's lacking in some particular way and then recognizing, hey, it seems like that's lacking. I wonder if I could do something to help supply there. I wonder if I could do something to step in and to assist in some way and to take action to help fulfill what's needed. Paul commends them for this great thing they did. He says they saw what was lacking and they sought to supply what the need was. And then he commends them, verse 18, for being the type of people, he says, who refreshed my spirit and yours. He commends them for being those who refreshed the spirit of others. Again, when we think about refreshment, the idea is to give new energy or strength, to revitalize life. When something is weary or someone is weary, to bring refreshment, the idea is kind of to blow new wind into the sails, which indicates that by their attitude and by their actions and maybe their prayers and their words and their practical assistance, they did things that brought refreshment to the Apostle Paul, that brought refreshment to other people and their spirit in the church. The idea is they were people who revitalized the weary. They renewed those who were feeling drained. They encouraged the downcast. They brought refreshment to the spirits of other people. What a wonderful thing to do in seeking to let our life be useful for the Lord. I mean, if we were to be very candid and simplistic, typically often the way that people behave or relate to people, they tend to usually do one of two different things. Either A, there are those who drain people. And then there are those who refresh people, right? There are those who are consumers, and there are those who are contributors. And a great thing to ask ourselves from time to time, Lord, what category am I kind of tending to fall in? 
Am I tending to be the kind of person by my attitude or actions or what I bring to a situation? Or am I tending to be someone that I'm always, yeah, I'm always tending to kind of drain everybody? Or, Lord, am I tending by the way that I'm trying to live my life and how I'm trying to serve? Am I trying to be someone intentionally who actually brings refreshment to people, to refresh my spouse, to refresh my parents, to refresh other Christians around me, where I say, you know, look, people are tired. The world's not easy, man. People are hurting. Everybody's struggling in all kinds of different ways. Lord, help me to blow fresh wind into people's sails. Help me not to be someone who's another drain or another draw. Help me to refresh people. Lord, how can I do that? You know, what a beautiful thing. When the spirit of the Lord is referred to in scripture so many times, he's described as what? Wind. Just refilling someone's sails and just helping them to soar again. May God help us by his spirit like these men to be those who refresh the spirit of others. Paul says, verse 19, concluding in his marks, he says, the churches of Asia, notice multiple churches where he was, they send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Now, Aquila and Priscilla had become great friends of the apostle Paul. The book of Acts tells us Paul met them as he was serving in tent-making work, trying to provide money for him and his missionary team as they were traveling around church planning. And Aquila and Priscilla seemed to have a tent-making business. And it seems they hired Paul to work with them. And as Paul worked with them and earned their respect and they built a relationship, Paul eventually led them to Christ. And then they began to develop a heart for ministry themselves to disciple and to help other people. Here we see them mentioned Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple, in verse 19, it says that at this point, they actually had a church that was meeting in their home. Now, understand, much of the early church, listen, due to cultural practice, as well as severe persecution against Christians and lack of financial resources, many of the early church could not meet in larger gatherings. They simply weren't able to circumstantially. It wasn't it was the cool thing to have church in your house. Oh, I don't need the church. We have church in our house. That's not what was going on. The churches many times met in homes because culturally that's what they had to do because of persecution and lack of resources. Typically, you don't see church facilities really to around 300 AD. This was very common. But this shows you this family had a real heart for people and they were willing to open their home to let the Lord's people come in and to gather and to assemble and to let their house just be used by the Lord. And I'll tell you, that's a commendable thing, right? You know what it's like when you have people over your house? Just be honest. All of a sudden, you actually got to clean your bathroom, wash the dishes, you got to vacuum the carpet, you got to make your house look the way it really doesn't look all week long. And, and, but how wonderful to just use what we have for the Lord. Lord, my home, my car, my, how do you want to use it, Lord? They, they, were, they were letting the people of God meet in their house and be ministered to and grow spiritually and such a beautiful thing. And I love the fact, too, that it says the church that met in their house. What does that also show us? That the church is not a building. It's the people of the Lord being assembled together. Notice he says the church, that is the Lord's people, that met in a house in that particular situation. What a great reminder to all of us that church is not about facilities and buildings and structures and the primary focus being on this and that and real estate and raising money. The church is about building up the people of the Lord 
Buildings are secondary things. All buildings do, honestly, is they just house what the work of the Spirit of God is doing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing a good job to take care of the Lord's people, but the primary focus in the Word of God is on establishing healthy people and healthy relationships. And the secondary thing is, where is it going to meet at? Uh, And here, this church was assembling in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 20 then says, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was cultural. Don't try it here. The ushers will take you out. (laughs) Two of my daughters are married, so their husbands are way bigger than me. They'll take care of that if you go after one of them. Verse 21, the salutation, he says, with my own hand. Typically, Paul dictated letters. It seems that he had an eye issue and wasn't able to see real well. So many times with what was called an amanuensis, Paul would dictate his letters and they would record. But Paul here, wanting them to know authenticity, he says, but the salutation, the signature, he says, I put down with my own hand to verify it was a genuine, authentic letter from the apostle Paul. He then goes on, verse 22, to say, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, Tell us how you feel, Paul. Let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Now, Paul closes with this zinger here in his remarks. He adds this expression, if anyone does not love, the word love there is not the word agape, unconditional love. It's actually the word phileo, which speaks of a fond affection, a partnership type of love, like shared between friends. And so what Paul, in essence, is saying here, if anyone doesn't have an affectionate love and heart to partner with the Lord Jesus Christ, which means they're going to do what? They're going to try and do everything they can to rebel against and stop the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to resist the work of his church and to go against it because they don't have an affectionate partnership. So they refuse to submit. Paul says, if that's the heart of someone, then Paul says, then let them get what they deserve. Let them be accursed. May the Lord deal with them for their rebellious spirit. But he says, however, in this exhortation or sort of this utterance of a prayer, the end of verse 22 says, but oh, Lord, Paul says at the end of that, as he thinks about people like that, oh, Lord, come, come, Lord. Your translations may say Maranatha, that old word. Paul utters here this spontaneous cry, oh, Lord, the only real thing that's going to solve all the hassles that we're having as your people is when you come get us. Lord, it's going to be really hard till then. And we got to be brave and be strong and watch and be standing fast in the faith. But Lord, all the problems, Lord, come soon. Come soon, because that's the only time it's ever going to be genuine relief. So Paul here utters this cry, Lord, Come claim us. Come bring us home. And I'll tell you, that is the longing cry, is it not, of all of us who know and love the Lord. Oh, Lord, come. Bring us home, Lord. Bring us home, Lord. We're looking forward to seeing you and being together with you. But Paul says, until Jesus does come, verse 23, may the grace of our Lord be with you. That's how we're going to last till he comes. By the grace of Jesus, that's how we stay faithful till he comes. And Paul reminds them, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, how do we make it until Jesus comes? By the grace of the Lord and by showing the love of God to one another as his people. Let's stand together. Let's pray.